Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagenia Internet Radio. Today is Friday, July 6th, 2018. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Clifton Emmerheiser, for those of you who've been following closely, was released from the hospital yesterday evening and sent to a nursing facility where hopefully he will successfully undergo a physical therapy program and return home. That is the goal. He is still sort of weak. I kind of think the hospital released him prematurely. I think maybe they just wanted to get rid of him to be honest. That's the way it is. So we'll see, but he's off the IV and things like that, and he's just starting to eat solid food again after having back surgery last Friday. Tonight we are going to present part six of our commentary on the Gospel of John, and this is simply subtitled The Wedding Feast at Cana. That will be the, well, with a few long digressions, that will be the subject matter of this evening's program. In John chapter 1, the Apostle had made many bold statements proclaiming the deity of Jesus, or Yahshua Christ. The assertions that he is the Word made flesh, the light of the world, the Lamb of God, and the declaration of the purpose of the ministry of John the Baptist, all assert in their own little ways, in different ways, that Yahshua Christ is indeed Yahweh God incarnate. He is the Son of God because He is the manifestation of God Himself as it was promised in the Psalms and the Prophets. This is better understood once the many passages from the Old Testament which also refer to these things are examined and considered even if they were not all explicitly cited by John himself. The New Testament cannot be properly understood outside of the context provided by the Old Testament, and we sought to elucidate many of those passages as we presented John chapter 1 over the first five parts of this series. That's about 12, 13 hours on John chapter 1. The Gospels of Luke and Matthew open with accounts of certain events from the birth and early life of Christ. But in the third chapter of each of those Gospels, there is the testimony of John the Baptist. The Gospel of Mark, similar to that of John, just certainly not as poetic, says nothing of the birth or early years in the life of Christ and opens with the testimony of John the Baptist. So the testimony of John is the event by which all four Gospels open their descriptions of the beginning of the ministry of Christ. Doing so, all four Gospels cite Isaiah chapter 40 verse 3, attributing the words to John as they are spoken in reference to Christ, where it describes the voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God, and explains that John the Baptist was that voice, 
If John was that voice, then Yahshua Christ must be Yahweh incarnate, the God for whom he prepared the way. Mark, in that first chapter, also cited Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, in reference to John the Baptist, where it says, Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me. And the Lord, the Hebrew word, Adon, and the Lord whom ye seek shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant whom ye delight in. Behold, he shall come, saith Yahweh of hosts. Yahshua Christ himself had later cited this same verse also in reference to John the Baptist as it is recorded in Matthew chapter 11 and Luke chapter 7. Both of these passages from Malachi and from Isaiah are prophecies of John the Baptist and of Yahshua Christ. And if John the Baptist was the messenger to prepare the way before the Lord, who would come to his temple, then Yahshua Christ is Yahweh himself, who came to his temple in fulfillment of that prophecy. Once again, if we believe the testimony of Isaiah and Malachi, then Yahshua must be God incarnate. <coughs> While the other Gospels do not really explain the introduction of the first disciples to Christ. We see here in John that some of them were originally disciples of John the Baptist, and that is how they knew enough to follow Christ. So we explain from John's accounts that the first disciples were Andrew and John himself, who were with John the Baptist, and then Andrew's brother Simon Peter. According to this Gospel of John, these three men became disciples of Christ the very next day after he was baptized by John the Baptist and was declared to be the Lamb of God. Then Christ, returning to Galilee with his new companions, was introduced to Philip and then to Nathanael where John related an account which demonstrates the prescience of Christ. With that, Christ himself revealed his divine nature, where he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you shall see the heaven having been opened and the messengers of Yahweh ascending and descending before the Son of Man. Now, as we commence with chapter 2 of John's Gospel, he turns to the more mundane aspects of the early days of the ministry of Christ, while describing some of the miraculous things which he had done, things which also establish the fact of his divine nature. So we read in John chapter 2 verse 1, Then on the third day there was a marriage feast in Cana of Galilea, or Galilahia, or Galilee, and the mother of Yahshua was there. This third day seems to be counting from the day when Christ was baptized by John, which is when John started counting in chapter 1 where he referred to the next day. However, he might be starting to count from that next day when Christ was joined by Andrew and John, 
And therefore this wedding feast would be three days after that day in which Andrew, John, and Simon Peter had begun to follow Christ. This method of counting the third day as three days after the first would also agree with the counting method which can be discerned from Luke chapter 24, verse 21. The day following, when Yahshua departed for Galilee, as it is described in John chapter 1, verse 43, would be the first of those three days. This leads us to a lengthy digression. According to the earliest manuscripts of this gospel, the place where John had baptized Christ is near a place called Bethania. But the town of Bethany, which is most familiar from the Gospels, was not even two miles east of Jerusalem, and that is perhaps 68 miles from the site of Cana in Galilee. It would have been difficult and very unlikely while on foot to cover such a long distance in only two days. Such a distance could easily be covered in a short time, a day or a day and a half, in a chariot or light wagon, but these things were rarely, rarely mentioned in scripture. The original language of Acts chapter 8 verse 30 reveals that Philip had used the chariot in his evangelical travels. But there is no indication that such a method of travel was ever available to the disciples in the travels which are described in the Gospel accounts. Furthermore, the familiar Bethany is not very close to the River Jordan. So if at John chapter 1 verse 28 we chose to follow the 5th century Codex Borgianus, and the manuscripts of origin which read Bethabara rather than Bethania. We have a place which may be only about 20 miles from Cana, which is also situated on the east bank of the Jordan River, close to the Sea of Galilee. This is seen on a 6th century Byzantine map of Palestine, which is partially preserved in an ancient floor mosaic which has been named the Madaba map and it provides a compelling argument for reading Bethabara rather than Bethania in John chapter 1. Bethabara was technically in the Decapolis and not in the Galilee so John would remain accurate where he said in John 1.43 that Jesus would go forth into Galilee as the King James Version has it. The King James Version has Bethabara in John chapter 1. However, it was my method to follow the readings of the oldest available manuscripts even where it seemed inconvenient to do so and therefore I wrote Bethania which could be translated as Bethany. If I ever departed from that method, it was only on rare occasion. This subject is well known among biblical archaeologists, and there are other factors to consider. The exact location of ancient Bethany in Judea is disputed by some archaeologists, 
although in any event it is less than two miles from Jerusalem, according to John chapter 11, verse 18. So, that location must be ruled out as a candidate here. John was not baptizing people at the Bethany, which is only two miles from Jerusalem. But the Bethania of John 128 is not necessarily the same as the Bethany, which is near Jerusalem. And for that reason, we did not comment on its location when we presented that portion of our commentary on John chapter 1. On the other hand, the name Bethabara may itself be an early corruption, according to some commentators who seek to identify it with places that are mentioned in Judges chapter 7, Joshua chapter 13, or Joshua chapter 18, as certain names of towns appear in either the Masoretic text or in the Septuagint. The name Bethany is defined by Strong to mean date house, referring to the fruit, not to a dating site, for which he provides no exact etymology. Later editions add house of misery to the definition. In the Wikipedia article for Bethabara, we see a line which appears in several different articles on the internet that reads, and I quote, G.A. Smith suggests in his Atlas of the Historical Geography of the Holy Land that Bethany, and in parentheses they have House of the Ship, and Bethabara, and in parentheses they have House of the Ford, or River Crossing, are names for the same place. Now the content of the statement may be credible, but the citation is wrong in more than one respect. George Adam Smith had at least two books on the subject. The Historical Geography of the Holy Land, published in 1897, and An Atlas of the Historical Geography of the Holy Land, published in 1915. The former is quite extensive, being 761 pages. The later, consisting mostly of maps, is quite concise at 116 pages. We have obtained copies of both books from archive.org and they will be available here when we post the notes to this program this evening. However, we cannot find a text reflected in that sloppy Wikipedia citation anywhere in the pages of either book, and we found that citation on several different websites. Nobody that repeated that citation credited it, and nobody gave the page which had supposedly appeared on G.A. Smith's book. What we do find on page 496 of his larger book, The Historical Geography of the Holy Land, is the following footnote. The place of our Savior's baptism 
is quite uncertain. The traditional site is that the Makhadet Haila, and I will describe that shortly. The Bethabara, where the Baptist is said by some manuscripts of the Gospel of John to have been baptizing about the time that Jesus came to him, is placed by Condor, an author whom he's citing, at the Ford Abara, just north of Baisan. But it must be kept in mind that a name like that, meaning ferry or crossing or ford, probably occurred more than once down the river. The other and more authentic reading, Bethany, and this is to his credit to write this in, in the 1890s when certain manuscripts weren't even discredited, discovered yet. The other and more authentic reading, Bethany, is offered by Condor, the author he's citing, as a proof of the nearness of the place of baptism to Bashan, meaning Bethany towards Jerusalem. There is, however, no argument, only a suggestion. Condor didn't support his suggestion. On the other hand, the proofs of which the author of Supernatural Religion, a separate work which we will also explain momentarily, bases on the word Bethany against the evangelist's knowledge of Palestine, only reveal his own ignorance both of the possibilities of the country in which many Bethanies may easily have lain, and the rest of the gospel, the writer of which, the writer of the book, the book Supernatural Religion, the writer of which expressly states that he knew, oh, I'm sorry, the writer of John's gospel, the writer of which expressly states that he knew the other Bethany near Jerusalem. And I understand it's a confusing quote because of the references to other authors. This Makhret Hila, or Hijla, H-I-J-L-A, H-I-J-L-E, H-A-J-L-A-H, it has several spellings, this word, I guess, several different ways to transliterate it from Arabic into English. This Makhret Hila is also known as Joshua's Crossing and is believed to be the site of the baptism of Christ. It was a strategic point in a battle between the British and the Ottomans in March of 1918. This is near Jericho, and still very far from Cana. It is also far from the familiar Bethany. The work referred to at the end of the note here, Supernatural Religion, was a controversial book first published anonymously in 1874, which is why George Adam Smith couldn't actually come up with the name of an author of the book. And later, in 1895, it was rumored to have been written by Walter Richard Cassells. Smith may very well have known this, but the evidence wasn't solid, and he probably did not know it in time to edit this voluminous book, which was published in 1897. If indeed Smith, George Adam Smith, in any of his many other books on biblical subjects, had derived the name Bethany from the Hebrew words for 
house and ship. The derivation is very plausible. The Hebrew word for ship is Oniyah, Strong's number 591. Oniyah, or Onaya, which in Hebrew would give us Beth Oniyah, a phrase which may easily be contracted to Bethania for Greek readers, which would also make sense if it described a place on the river where boats were either built or berthed. So we can see that Smith, or some other writer, may indeed have proposed that Bethany, which may mean house of the ship, and Bethabara, or Bethabara, which apparently means house of the ford, or river crossing, were names for the same place. We took this long digression to help illustrate a few of the problems with biblical geography and ancient geography in general, as we do not always know exactly what places had once existed, or, if they did exist, exactly where they had existed. The appropriate ancient records are often quite scarce, and just as often, archaeologists can only guess the locations of ancient towns and villages. For that reason, I usually opted to follow the preponderance of evidence in the oldest manuscripts for place names and resist innovations based on the incomplete understanding which we have of these things today. So the Christogonian New Testament has Bethania rather than Bethabara at John one twenty-eight although the presence of the label for Bethabara or Bethabara on the Madaba map is very compelling and there will be a link to this map published along with this program. In any event, Yahshua and his disciples were able to travel from the place where John was baptizing to Cana in Galilee within a period of two days. Now we shall commence with John chapter 2, where we see that there was a marriage feast in Cana of Galilee, and the people celebrating their marriage must have been familiar friends of Yahshua and his earthly family, as even his mother was invited to this feast. The presumed site of ancient Cana was only about eight and a half miles from Nazareth, or, if some archaeologists are correct in the identification of a different nearby town as Cana, then it was only four miles from Nazareth. It is also likely that, aside from his divine prescience, Yahshua had planned to attend this feast well ahead of his journey to be baptized by John. So we continue. And Yahshua and his students had also been invited to the marriage feast. Notice that this is a marriage feast, a celebration, and not some sacramental ritual performed at a synagogue and officiated by some Levite. Neither was it at a church building or pagan temple officiated by some priest. That is not 
the way in which marriage was conducted or even considered until very recently in our history. In ancient times, pagans were married at the altars of Baal by engaging in open sexual acts at those altars. So only pagans were married by priests, and often it was in random acts for their pagan fertility rituals. The children of Israel and their ancestors were married in quiet arrangements made between a man and the family of his prospective wife. So while Christ performed his first recorded miracle at this wedding feast, a term which we should not interpret to include a formal wedding ceremony, that does not mean that he would approve of the modern, legalistic, contractual agreement which we now call marriage. Today the apparatus of the state has reduced marriage to a mere financial and legal agreement which has degenerated into disgraceful expressions of contract law and legal haggling over property. And of course once the state asserted its authority over the marriage tradition, now men can marry themselves to just about anything. And it often isn't marriage at all. The celebration of an arranged marriage with a wedding feast is first apparent in Scripture in Genesis chapter 29. Jacob was sent by his parents to the land of their fathers to obtain a wife and ultimately he arrives at the home of Laban, his mother's brother. So we read in that chapter, And it came to pass, when Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, that Jacob went near, and rolled the stone from the well's mouth, and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother, that was actually an act of chivalry because that was evidently Rachel's task to do that and Jacob seeing her volunteered to do it for her and Jacob kissed Rachel and lifted up his voice and wept and Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's brother actually his nephew and that he was Rebekah's son and she ran and told her father. And it came to pass, when Laban heard the tidings of Jacob his sister's son, that he ran to meet him, and embraced him, and kissed him, and brought him to his house. And he told Laban all these things. And Laban said to him, Surely thou art my bone and my flesh. And he abode with him, the space of a month. And Laban said unto Jacob, Because thou art my brother, shouldest thou therefore serve me for naught? Tell me what shall be thy wages. And Laban had two daughters. The name of the elder was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah was tender-eyed, but Rachel was beautiful and well-favored. And Jacob loved Rachel, and said, I will serve thee seven years for Rachel thy younger daughter. 
And Laban said, It is better that I give her to thee than that I should give her to another man. Abide with me. And Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed on him but a few days for the love he had to her. And Jacob said unto Laban, Give me my wife, for my days are fulfilled, that I may go in unto her, that I may have sexual intercourse with her. And Laban gathered all the men of the place and made a feast. That would be a wedding feast. But it was not the act of marriage. Rather, it only celebrated the marriage, which happened later that evening in a bed, as the subsequent events prove sufficiently, more than sufficiently. So Laban and Jacob had an agreement, and in order to receive his wife, Jacob had to satisfy not the wife, but her father. The wife evidently had no say in the matter. Now Laban deceives Jacob, where we read, And it came to pass in the evening, that he took Leah his daughter, and brought her to him, and he went in unto her. He had sexual intercourse with her. There were no electric lights in these days. This whole event could have taken three minutes. Jacob's a virgin. Leah is a virgin. And it's pitch dark outside. And Laban gave unto his daughter Leah Zilpah, his maid for a handmaid. And it came to pass that in the morning, behold, it was Leah when the sun rose. And he said to Laban, What is this thou hast done unto me? Did I not serve with thee for Rachel? Wherefore then hast thou beguiled me? All of this proves that the marriage happened in the bed, not in the wedding feast the night before. If the marriage happened at a wedding feast the night before, then it would have been commonly understood that Jacob was married to Rachel because that's who he intended to marry. The wedding feast the night before was only sort of a, a celebration for the man to commemorate the marriage which was about to happen in a bed. And Laban said, it must not be so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Fulfill her week, the week meaning seven years, and we will give thee this also, or her also, for the service which thou shalt serve with me yet seven other years. And Jacob did so, and fulfilled her week. And he gave him Rachel his daughter to wife also. And Laban gave to Rachel his daughter Bilhah, his handmaid, to be her maid. And he went in also unto Rachel. That's when he married Rachel. And that's how he married Rachel. And he didn't even get another feast. <laughs> and he loved also Rachel more than Leah. And served with him yet another seven years. And when Yahweh saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb which means that Jacob continued to have sexual relations with her. She was his wife. But Rachel was barren, 
and she was also his wife, but she didn't have children. And Leah conceived and bare a son. And we have read enough for our purposes here. Of course it is evident that if Jacob had refused Leah, then he would have never had Rachel. Laban would have been pissed, upset. But even though Jacob was deceived into taking Leah to wife, where he expected Rachel, he had unwittingly slept with Leah, and therefore he did the honorable thing by keeping her for a wife. With this we see that the feast which had occurred the evening before was not connected with any formal marriage ceremony. None whatsoever. And as for the keeping of a woman with whom one has had sexual intercourse, we can see that same principle was later expressed as an element of the law. This is true even in cases of rape, if a man rapes a virgin. We read in Deuteronomy chapter 22, If a man finds a damsel that is a virgin, who is not betrothed, and lay hold on her, that means, and forces her, and lies with her, and they be found. Then the man that lays with her shall give unto the damsel's father fifty shekels of silver, and she shall be his wife. Because he has humbled her, he may not put her away all his days. If the woman were married, or even betrothed, or promised in marriage, and a man raped her, the man is subject to the death penalty. A man who rapes a virgin is forced by the law to marry her and never put her away. Properly, marriage in the Bible happens in the act of sexual intercourse, and not at an altar. Therefore, in effect, in the eyes of Yahweh our God, there is no such thing as sex outside of marriage, because the act of intercourse is the process of getting married. Any sexual act conducted with another outside of marriage is either adultery or fornication or perhaps sodomy or bestiality, all of which are punishable by death. Unlike his son Jacob, Isaac had no feast, as Rebekah's family was not present to celebrate one. His father's servant traveled to Padanaram and arranged to take Rebekah back to Canaan, to Abraham's house, so that she could be a wife for Isaac. When Rebekah was brought close to Isaac's homestead, we read from Genesis chapter 24, and it was actually because Rebekah's parents were deceased. It was actually Laban, Rebekah's brother, the same Laban that gave Jacob, Rachel, and Leah, gave Rebekah up for Isaac at much easier terms, under much easier terms, under much more lenient terms. When Rebekah was brought close to Isaac's homestead, we read from Genesis chapter 24, and Rebekah lifted up her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she lighted off the camel. For she had said unto the servant, What man is this that walks in the field to meet us? And the servant 
had said, It is my master. Therefore she took a veil and covered herself. And the servant told Isaac all things that he had done. And Isaac brought her to the justice of the peace, right? No. And Isaac brought her into his mother Sarah's tent and took Rebekah and she became his wife. And he loved her. And Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. Probably couldn't have got away with that if she was still alive. Surely there was no pagan priest with an altar, nor any justice of the peace, nor a clerk issuing licenses in that tent where Isaac and Rebekah were married. Marriage happens in a bed. I'm sure there was a bed in that tent. Any celebrations of the marriage, any rituals held by a minister or priest, and any government licenses are all separate from the act the actual act of marriage. While many people find comfort in a wedding celebration or think it necessary because of tradition, there is nothing wrong with such a celebration if that is what they desire. But it must be realized that the celebration of a marriage and the marriage itself are two entirely different things. There is absolutely no scriptural necessity to have a wedding celebration to commemorate a marriage. And the vast majority of our people throughout our history never had and could never even afford such a celebration. <coughs> Excuse me. Marriage, properly, is a sexual relationship between a man and a woman of the same flesh and bone as it is required in Genesis chapter 2 verse 23 and as Laban had exclaimed to Jacob in Genesis chapter 29 verse 14 traditionally the marriage arrangement was made by a man and the father of the woman whom he sought to marry an oldest brother or uncle stood in the place of the father if he was deceased because a woman was always properly under the authority of a man who was her husband or her next of kin. As we see in the as we see in the cases of Isaac and Jacob the man may be lenient in his requirements, like Laban was with Rebecca, probably wanted to just get rid of his sister. Or he may be very demanding, as he was with his daughters, Rachel and Leah. So the price for marriage was only what a man agreed to with the prospective wife's family. Once an agreement was made, the woman was considered to be betrothed or promised in marriage. When the agreement was fulfilled, then the marriage could actually occur. Once a woman was betrothed, the laws of Yahweh afforded her and her future husband all the same protections as if they were married, which is why there was a death penalty for raping a woman who had been betrothed or promised in marriage. 
We, as Christians, must seek to please God and not man. So any compulsion to satisfy the legal requirements of any particular government is another matter entirely. But it is not marriage in the eyes of God. Sadly, most people today are married many times before they actually think they are married because the denominational churches as well as the governments have perverted the law. Until relatively recently, people were married in the same manner that Isaac or Jacob were married. All of the modern concepts of marriage were developed slowly over the last few centuries, beginning from the year 1538, which is when the Church of England began requiring that local churches started recording the marriages which occurred in their communities. Not officiating, but merely recording. Before that time, churches had nothing to do with marriage. Nothing at all. On the other hand, if a man and his wife desired to ensure to one another certain legal entitlements according to the laws of their particular government, because that assurance may benefit one spouse or the other in cases such as inheritance or other property rights, then getting married according to the procedures of that government is an economic decision between that man and his wife, which, once again, in reality, has nothing to do with the fact that the couple may already be married in the eyes of God. The man and his wife should therefore understand that the marriage commitment which they have is governed by God and not man. What, therefore, God has joined together, let not man put asunder. It is God and man's love and fear of God which makes and keeps a marriage. So any government license or even any wedding celebration is superfluous to the subject of the act of marriage itself. The government and the churches have not been able to keep people married as they attempt to replace God. In fact, far fewer people manage to stay married since the government has made its own laws concerning marriage and divorce. So the government is an abject failure at playing God. Now, after another long digression, we shall proceed with John chapter 2. And being short of wine, the mother of Joshua says to him, they do not have wine. And Yahshua says to her, What is there with me and with you, woman? My hour has not yet come. The Codex Sinaiticus has verse 3 to read. And they had no wine because the wine of the wedding feast was finished. The mother of Joshua says to him, There is no wine. Mary must have had some esteem among the families of those celebrating their marriage. For her to even get involved in attempting to solve the dilemma of a lack of wine in the first place. And 
for their servants to obey her. There certainly were connections to Cana, which was not far from Nazareth, since Christ returns there after his sojourn in Capernaum, which is recorded in John chapter 4. And Nathanael was a native of Cana, which is recorded in John chapter 21. A later disciple, Simon, who is mentioned in Matthew chapter 10 and Mark chapter 3, was also from Cana. What is there with me and with you? Or, in other words, what have you to do with me? Or what have you to do with my purpose? Yahshua is admonishing his mother for putting herself where she does not belong, in a position of authority over his supernatural talents, over the divine aspect of his person as God incarnate. She must have known that he was able to do something unnatural or unusual to remedy the lack of wine at the feast. But even if he admonished his mother, Yahshua was her son, and his own law demands that he respect her wishes. So she must also have known that, rather confidently, and without a direct answer from him, she proceeds with an assurance of his compliance to her wishes, where we read, where we read, I'm sorry, in the next verse, that his mother says to the servants, whatever he should say to you, you do. The first concept expressed in the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20 is that men must honor God. This is found in the first four commandments. The second concept expressed in those commandments is to honor thy father and mother, that thy days may be long upon the land which Yahweh thy God gives thee. Here we have a signal example that even Yahweh God keeps his own laws. So we read, and there were six stone urns, or water jars, the Greek word hydria, as I would pronounce it. And there were six stone urns sitting there in accordance with the purification of the Judeans, each having space or room for two or three amphorae. The word amphorae, from the Greek word amphorius, is here translated from a Greek equivalent, metrates, which is also the equivalent of the Hebrew word bath, for which Luke writes batis in chapter 16 of his gospel, verse 6. The King James Version has firkins, F-I-R-K-I-N-S, here rather than amphorae, and firkins is a rather strange word. The archaic firkin was equivalent to about 11 gallons. Typically, amphorae were pottery bottles used to store oil or wine, and they usually held about 9 or 10 gallons each.
being commonly used in trade. They were often transported by merchant vessels and many examples have been discovered at the bottom of the Mediterranean Sea. This must be a rather large wedding feast since six urns of two amphorae having a volume of two amphorae would each hold at least 18 gallons. If half of them held 27 gallons or three amphorae there would be 135 gallons of wine and that is the low estimate. The high would be more like a hundred and fifty. Where it says in accordance with the purification of the Judeans we see a reference to the man-made traditions imposed by the Pharisees which Christ had criticized in the Gospel for example in Luke chapter 11 and which he and his disciples also disregarded which is evident in Mark chapter 7 where we read in part and seeing some of his students that with profane hands that is unwashed they eat bread and now there's a parenthetical remark here for the Pharisees and all the Judeans if they do not wash the hands to the elbow they do not eat according to the tradition of the elders and from the marketplace if they do not rinse they do not eat and there are many other things which they undertook to hold to washings of cups and pitchers and pots and the Pharisees and that's the end of our parenthetical remark and the Pharisees and the scribes questioned him for what reason do your students not walk according to the tradition of the elders but with profane hands they eat bread so here we see that these regulations of men were extended to jars as well as to cups and pitchers and pots Evidently, the regulations developed out of an insane paranoia for adhering to the dietary laws, as later in the Gospel Christ had admonished them for straining out gnats but swallowing camels, which is recorded in Matthew chapter 23. Blind guides straining out the gnat but swallowing the camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! because you cleanse the outside of the cup and the dish but the insides are filled from rapine and incontinence in other words they stole everything by which they could afford to fill their cups and their dishes blind Pharisees cleanse first the insides of the cup and the dish in order that the outsides of them shall be clean now in verse 7, Yahshua says to them, Fill the urns with water. And they filled them to the top. Then he says to them, Now draw and bring it to the table master. And they brought it. That Greek verb for draw here is antleo, which is generally to draw water, and which implies that the water should be drawn from an urn into whatever vessel the servant customarily used to serve wine at the table which is left unmentioned here it's only inferred by the text 
or implied by the text, I'm sorry. The word Architriclinus. Architriclinus is literally the leader of a room with three couches. I think that's pretty funny. Which Liddell and Scott define as the leader of a banquet. But it is not the host of the banquet. <clears throat> Thayer defines the word as the superintendent of a dining room or table master and explains that it differs from the master of a feast, which is the symposiarches, the chief of the symposium, right? The toastmaster, who was one of the guests selected by lot to prescribe to the rest the mode of drinking. And Thayer cites the Wisdom of Sirach, chapter 35, verse 1. Or perhaps in the King James Version, chapter 32, verse 1, is a difference there. Thayer says, but it was the duty of the Architriclinus, the word that we see here as table master, to place in order the tables and couches, arrange the courses, taste the food and wine beforehand, etc. Citing a profane Greek author, a secular Greek author. From the context here, it seems that the table master is a guest and not a servant or a member of the household, which is especially evident here in verse 10. We're not up to verse 10 yet. At this point it is evident, it is absolutely evident, that the servants of the household must have had great faith in Mary, and also in Yahshua, since if they brought mere water to the table master, or as we may call him today, the master of ceremonies, where the King James Version has governor of the feast, if they brought him mere water, they would have certainly been ridiculed. Rather, having faith in something they could not have known, John records, and as the table master tasted the water, it became wine, and he knew not from where it is, but the servants who had drawn the water knew. The table master calls the bridegroom and says to him, All men set out the good wine first, and the inferior when they are drunk, but you have kept the good wine until now. Now that's sort of supports the Codex Sinaiticus reading of one of the earlier verses that explained that they had already finished. <laughs> the guests had already finished all the wine that was originally procured for the feast. So what we have here is a whole room full of drunks. If that doesn't describe the children of Israel, I don't know what does. The phrase all men in this passage is literally singular, every man. But it's interpreted as all men because the verb, which appears later, tithemi, which means to set, is in a third-person plural form. 
Here we see that in this particular instance, it was the bridegroom who held the feast and not the father of his bride. Some commentators interpret the description in verse 9 to mean that none of the water became wine until each individual at the feast drank from his own cup. With this we do not agree, since it would require a lack of observation on the part of each individual not to notice that there was only water in his cup in the first place. I would rather believe that all of the water somehow became wine as the table master took that first sip from his own cup. Of course, the difference in the interpretation in that regard is insignificant to me, but others make entire analogies out of that interpretation. Of course, Solomon, in both the Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, had frequently warned of the troubles which an excess of wine may cause a man, and especially a king. Both Peter and Paul also warned Christians to be sober and not given to excessive wine, but they certainly do not forbid wine. Praising the works of Yahweh, we read in the 104th Psalm, He watereth the hills from his chambers. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of thy works. He causes the grass to grow for the cattle and the herb, the herb for the service of man that he may bring forth food out of the earth, and wine that makes glad the heart of man, and oil to make his face to shine, and bread which strengthens man's heart. The law, the law also establishes that wine is a gift from God, as we read in Deuteronomy chapter 7. Wherefore it shall come to pass, if ye hearken to these judgments, and keep them, and do them, that Yahweh thy God shall keep unto thee the covenant and the mercy which he sware unto thy fathers. And he will love thee, and bless thee, and multiply thee. He will also bless the fruit of thy womb, and the fruit of thy land, thy corn, and thy wine, and thine oil, the increase of thy kine, or cattle, and the flocks of thy sheep, in the land which he sware unto thy fathers to give thee. Similar promises are stated elsewhere in Deuteronomy. Certain teetotalers reject the notion that Yahshua actually turned the water into authentic wine here, or even that he and his disciples drank wine at all. They would rather believe that this was grape juice. They interpret the admonitions to be sober as requirements for complete abstinence. That belief is wrong. The Greek word ornus is wine, and it refers to fully fermented wine, which was routine, routinely consumed by the disciples of Christ. The Greek word glucos, which appears in chapter 2 of the book of Acts, for instance, describes new wine which is not yet fully fermented, but which may be expected to ferment. It could refer to grape juice, but was typically in the beginning of the fermentation process, and therefore not as strong as wine. It was frequently served in the morning, or to children at any time. That is why it was used in reference to the apostles in Acts chapter 2 
of a time early in the day when they would be expected to have had glucose as part of their morning meal and not oinus or fully fermented wine. Among other Greek words for vinegar or for wine in various stages of production because there are a few other words that describe the technical stages of wine in production is trucks or tricks a word which does not appear in the New Testament and which describes grape juice recently prepared for fermentation. Here the word is always oinous. It describes wine which is fully fermented and the apostles would have used other terms if they intended to describe any juice of the grape which was not fully fermented. Jesus turned the wine into oinous or the water into oinous which was fully fermented wine. John concludes the account. This was the first of the signs which Joshua had done in Cana of Galilee. And he made manifest his honor and his students believed in him varying slightly the third century papyrus p66 and the codex sinaiticus have the beginning of this verse to read this first was the beginning of signs meaning that there would there were many others many denominational commentators commentators draw allegories from the marriage feast at cana which are based on false interpretations of scripture and many of them imagine that Yahweh somehow changed the people of his promises. Just like Christ had changed the water into wine. That is an absolute heresy and nothing could be further from the truth. After this wedding feast, John informs us that Yahshua, along with his family and disciples, goes to Capernaum. And while there, John does not well, well, I'm sorry, and while here in his gospel, John does not record all of the events of this time. Luke tells us more in chapter 4 of his gospel, as does Matthew, where we read in part that Christ went first to Nazareth from Cana and attended the synagogue on a Sabbath. Then he went to Capernaum. But while he was still in Nazareth, he stood to read, where Luke wrote, And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found a place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And he closed the book, and he gave it again to the minister, and sat down. And the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began to say unto them, This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. The Citation 
is from Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 2. Except for the line which says, To set at liberty them that are bruised. That line came from much higher up on the scroll. It came from Isaiah chapter 58, verse 6, which is made evident by comparing the New Testament Greek to that of the Septuagint in Isaiah. According to Luke, this event in Nazareth occurred just as Christ had completed his 40 days fasting in the desert. This is not a coincidence. Now we shall read a larger portion of the scripture from Isaiah chapter 58, of which Christ himself had said, This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. And from verse 1, Cry aloud, spare not, lift up thy voice like a trumpet, and show my people their transgression, and the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily, and delight to know my ways, as a nation that did righteousness, and forsook not the ordinance of their God. They ask of me the ordinances of justice. They take delight in approaching to God. Wherefore have we fasted, they say, and thou seest not? Wherefore have we afflicted our soul, and thou takest no knowledge? Behold, in the day of your fast ye find pleasure, and exact all your labors. They weren't fasting, sincerely. Behold, ye fast for strife, and debate, and to smite with the fist of wickedness, to exalt themselves over their brethren. Ye shall not fast as ye do this day, to make your voice to be heard on high. Is it such a fast that I have chosen, a day for a man to afflict his soul? Is it to bow down his head as a bulrush, and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? In other words, the fast isn't really to make a show that you're fasting. Wilt thou call this a fast, and an acceptable day to Yahweh? Is not this the fast that I have chosen? The fast that he wants them to have participated in, to have partaken in, is described in the phrases to come. Is this not the fast that I have chosen? To loose the bands of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens, and to let the oppressed go free, and ye that ye break every yoke, in other words, free your people who are, your brethren who are obligated to you, to let the oppressed go free, that is the line Christ took from Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 58 for his citation from Isaiah chapter 61 as it is recorded in Luke chapter 4. There must have been a reason why he did that. And the manuscripts of Isaiah are consistent in this respect. Is this not the fast that I have chosen? To loose the bands of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens, 
and to let the oppressed go free, and that ye break every yoke. Is it not to deal thy bread to the hungry, and that thou bring the poor that are cast out to thy house? When thou seest the naked, that thou cover him, and that thou hide not thyself from thine own flesh. These are the things that we should use our fasting for. Then shall thy light break forth as the morning, and thine health shall spring forth speedily, and thy righteousness shall go before thee. The glory of Yahweh shall be thy rearward, rearward. and shalt thou call, and Yahweh shall answer. Thou shalt cry, and he shall say, Here I am. If thou take away from the midst of thee the yoke, the putting forth of the finger, and speaking vanity, and if thou draw out thy soul to the hungry, and satisfy the afflicted soul, then shall thy light rise in obscurity, and thy darkness be as the noonday. And Yahweh shall guide thee continually, and satisfy thy soul in drought, and make fat thy bones, and thou shalt be like a watered garden, and like a spring of water, whose waters fail not. And they that shall be of thee shall build the old waste places. Thou shalt raise up the foundations of many generations, and thou shalt be called the repairer of the breach. I did a, an entire sermon on that inside of Paul's epistles. The restorer of paths to dwell in. I don't remember which one. If thou turn away thy foot from the Sabbath, from doing thy pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, the holy of Yahweh, honorable, and shall honor him, not doing thine own ways, not finding thine own pleasure, nor speaking thine own words, then thou shalt delight in Yahweh, and I will cause thee to ride upon the house the high places of the earth, and feed thee with the heritage of Jacob thy father, for the mouth of Yahweh has spoken it. And I had to read that much to get that far. The children of Israel failed to attain righteousness, to righteousness in their own fasts. However, Yahshua Christ attained righteousness for them by his own fasts, through which he did let the oppressed go free, to set at liberty them that are bruised, who are those same children of Israel whom he punished in captivity in the days of the Assyrians and Babylonians. And now the shorter pericope from Isaiah chapter 61. The Spirit of Yahweh God is upon me, because Yahweh has anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. This is what Christ was citing in Luke 4. He has set me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of Yahweh. And that's where he stopped quoting, but we will continue. And the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all that mourn, to appoint unto them that mourn in Zion, meaning the children of Israel, to give unto them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, 
and a garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they might be called trees of righteousness, the planting of Yahweh, that he might be glorified. While in Nazareth, Yahshua Christ had cited from Isaiah chapters 58 and 61. We see similar language in Isaiah chapter 49, which also informs us of the identity of the prisoners whom he intended to release. And now saith Yahweh that formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob again to him, though Israel be not gathered, yet shall I be glorious in the eyes of Yahweh, and my God shall be my strength. And he said, Is it a light thing that thou shouldest be my servant, this is a messianic prophecy, to raise up the tribes of Jacob, and to restore the preserved of Israel? I will also give thee for a light to the nations, that thou shalt be my salvation to the end of the earth. Thus saith Yahweh, the Redeemer of Israel, and his Holy One, to him whom man despises, to him whom the nation abhors, to a servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise, princes also shall worship, because of Yahweh that is faithful, and the Holy One of Israel, and he shall choose thee. Thus saith Yahweh, In an acceptable time have I heard thee, and in a day of salvation have I helped thee, and I will preserve thee, and give thee for a covenant of the people, to establish the earth, to cause to inherit the desolate heritages, that thou mayest say to the prisoners, Go forth to them that are in darkness, show yourselves. They shall feed in the ways, and their pasture shall be in all the high places. They shall not hunger nor thirst, neither shall the heat nor sun smite them. For he that has mercy on them shall lead them. Even by the springs of water shall he guide them. Paul cites this same passage in Isaiah chapter 49 verse 8. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6 where he says, Now working together, we also exhort you not to accept the favor of Yahweh to no purpose. For he says, In an acceptable time I have listened to you, and in a day of deliverance I have come to help you. Behold, the present time is well acceptable. Behold, the present day is of deliverance. Yahweh was speaking to the dispersed of ancient Israel through Isaiah. And Yahweh was writing to some of those same dispersed of ancient Israel through Paul of Tarsus. There is nothing about replacing the children of Israel. The prophets only inform us of the purposed restoration of the same ancient children of Israel who were punished in the days of the prophets and taken into captivity. The prisoners of Luke chapter 4 and Isaiah chapter 61 are the ancient children of Israel who were alienated from their God in that captivity. For their punishment, we read in Amos chapter 8, Behold, the days come, saith Yahweh God, that I will send a famine in the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of Yahweh, and they shall wander from sea to sea, and from the north even to the east. 
they shall run to and fro and seek the word of Yahweh and shall not find it. If Christ is the bread of life, then he is the allegorical bread which remedies the famine described in Amos. If the wine of communion should represent the blood of Christ, then he is the water turned to wine which also alleviates that same famine. And that is the analogy that we can draw from the miracle of Cana, that the blood of the covenant in Christ is better than the allegorical water of the word of God, which the children of Israel had done without since the nation was taken into captivity. But according to Isaiah and Amos, these things only relate to the ancient children of Israel, and therefore no other people can claim them for themselves. That all of this happens at a wedding feast may be symbolic of the fulfillment of the promise which Yahweh made to Israel in Hosea chapter 2. And I will betroth thee unto me forever. Yea, I will betroth thee unto me in righteousness and in judgment, and in loving kindness and in mercies. I will even betroth thee unto me in faithfulness, and thou shalt know Yahweh. Thus we read in Joel chapter 3, Yahweh also shall roar out of Zion, and utter his voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth shall shake. But Yahweh will be the hope of his people, and the strength of the children of Israel. So shall ye know that I am Yahweh your God dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. Then shall Jerusalem be holy, and there shall no strangers pass through her any more. And it shall come to pass in that day that the mountains shall drop down new wine, and the hills shall flow with milk, and all the rivers of Judah shall flow with waters, and a fountain shall come forth out of the house of Yahweh, and shall water the valley of Shittim. Christ said in John chapter 4 that he who drinks of the earthly water shall thirst yet again. But he who drinks of the fountain of waters which he offers shall never thirst. Strangers are not going to be made into Christians. Rather, strangers are going to no longer be permitted among true Christians, which are the seed of the ancient children of Israel. No stranger shall pass through her any more. In Jeremiah chapter 31, the house of Israel and the house of Judah were promised a new covenant. Behold, the days come, saith Yahweh, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they break, although I was a husband unto them, saith Yahweh. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith Yahweh, I will put my law in their inward parts, and write it in their hearts, and will be their God, and they shall be my people, and nobody else. In Ezekiel chapter 34 there is another promise of a new covenant. Therefore will I save my flock, and they shall no more be a prey, and I will judge between cattle and cattle. And I will set up one shepherd over them, and he shall feed them, even my servant David. He shall feed them, and he shall be their shepherd. And I, Yahweh, will be 
their God, and my servant David, a type of Christ, a prince among them, I, Yahweh, have spoken it. And I will make with them a covenant of peace, and will cause the evil beasts, the niggers and chiggers and all the other squat monsters, to cease out of the land, and they shall dwell safely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. This is the covenant of which Christ was the messenger. As we already read in Malachi chapter 3, Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom ye seek shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant, whom ye delight in. Behold, he shall come, saith Yahweh of hosts. None of these promises of a new covenant can possibly be construed to include anyone but the physical descendants of the ancient children of Israel, the allegorical prisoners in the allegorical prison house since the days when their fathers were put off in captivity for their sins. Now John neglects to include the accounts of Joshua's temptation in the desert and his sojourn in Nazareth, and he says, After this, after the miracle at Cana, he went down into Capernaum, and his mother, and brethren, and his students, and they abode there for not many days. Among the brethren of Christ who accompanied him to Capernaum would have been James the Elder, the James of Acts chapters 15 and 21, and of the epistle which bears his name, and Jude his brother, who is also the author of the short epistle bearing that name. Where it says, for not many days, we see that they did not stay very long in Capernaum. Christ had made several stops in Capernaum during his ministry, and the people were evidently quite stubborn to hear his gospel, on which account he says in Matthew chapter 11, And now Capernaum, which art exalted unto heaven, shall be brought down to hell, for if the mighty works which had been done in thee had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. Here John does not tell us what transpired in Capernaum, or in Nazareth after he left Capernaum. He also omits the account of the forty days in the desert and the temptation of Christ during that time, which is recorded in all three of the Synoptic Gospels. This is persuasive evidence that John's Gospel, written last of the four, was intended to inform Christians of things that the other Gospels did not recount. Especially where the other Gospel writers were not eyewitnesses, but John himself was present for these events. Matthew has nothing between the baptism of Christ by John and the temptation in the wilderness. From the rather concise Gospel of Mark, one may be led to believe that the temptation in the wilderness happened immediately after that baptism. Both men do recount some of the things which transpired during the first visit of Christ to Capernaum following the wedding feast at Cana. Luke informs us that after the baptism of Christ, he fasts forty days in a desert where he is tempted, and then goes to Nazareth where the people wanted to slay him. 
Then he went to Capernaum and also preached elsewhere in Galilee. Matthew supports this sequence of events and adds that after the temptation in the wilderness, Christ had heard that John the Baptist was imprisoned by Herod. So from John we may fill in further details of this early portion of the ministry of Christ. But John did not repeat much of what is already found in the other Gospels. That does not mean that any of the Gospels are inaccurate, but only that each writer had a different recollection of these events from which to create his narrative. And while they are all accurate, none of them by themselves are complete, especially since for these early years the other three are all vicarious. As we have already said, it may well have been intentional that God that that I'm sorry, that John did not repeat the things found in the other gospels. And this is the end of our presentation, and we will continue at this point, Yahweh willing, when we resume with John chapter 2 next week. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and good night.